Welcome back, nature lovers, to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. Just as a reminder, Spooky Bunch merch has dropped. And if you are especially interested in some spooky merch, uh, go ahead and use code SPOOKY for 15% off. And with that, let's get into it. Welcome back to another episode of the Spooky Bunch, where we talk everything conservation, education, fascination, and spook. Yeah, My, for sure. we, we talk spook. We talk spook. Yeah. My name is Brittany, and I am joined today by my two friends and co-hosts. I'm Matt. And I'm Spooky CJ. We couldn't get Spooky Matt again this year. He's hard to book. Mm-mm. He's doing a lot of prep work. Spooky we'll Matt try next year. We'll try next year to get Spooky Matt. Yeah. He's hard to book. Yeah, I'll, I'll be around. Is that, Spooky Matt, was that you? I'll be around. Wow. How are we doing this week, folks? It's been a it's been a pretty spooky week. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> uh, time is short, and days are long. Um, I think that's the life of a grad student, is what I'm being told. However. It's, uh, you know, we're getting some good birding in. Uh, nothing as crazy as last week with a, a wood stork and a, a snowy egret and a, what do you call it? Uh, God, what was that third bird? Oh, geez. A sabin's gull in three days. Nothing like that, but still some good stuff. Some fun bird banding. Still getting some warblers and migrants coming through. So it's been fun being outside regardless. I haven't been up to too much this week. Honestly, it is a... Uh... It's it's really been just uh, preparing for the spooky season, and carving carving pumpkins and 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 making those cheap ghost cookies that you buy at the store. The best cookies. I mean, yeah, you're not wrong, but that's that's really been what I've been up to. Um, I'm learning how to make focaccia bread, and by learning, I mean I Google the recipe. So we'll see what happens. Ooh, yummy! I I also this week have had pretty much nothing going on but spooky awesomeness of decorating my house. Um, I am very excited this year to get trick or treaters, and I we have officially picked out our Halloween decor or our Halloween costumes. Um, what are we, we going to be for Halloween? It's decided. It's decided. I made the decision based off of a Target costume I saw for my dog. Immaculate. What is it? It is. Um, just like a little harness that has a pirate squirrel that looks like the pirate squirrel is riding the dog. Very cute. And Baloo has no problem with like costumes and things like that. So I didn't have to like, he's all good to go. So we're all going to be pirates and it's all based off of pirate squirrels. Very cute. That's so sweet. I'm going to be honest. Halloween's very quickly rising up the ranks of my favorite holidays. Like, Past two years, it's really. I mean, you could, you could, you could, you could attribute that to to coincidence, Matt. Yeah, but no, it, I think it'd be even spookier to to attribute it to the spooky bunch. Yeah, I mean, diving into this initiative as I've really started to, it's been fun. I love it, and and we have an even more fun episode this week with an even mm-hmm. more fun guest, Brittany. Bring us into our first segment for the day. All right. Well, we're gonna head into our. 
spooky creature feature today. To most people out there, dead things are something to be avoided. They're not always the most fun to be around. Dead things are really important to us for a lot of reasons, either for knowledge or teaching or food, and we're not the only species out there who needs them. It'd practically be a crime to discuss dead things without mentioning vultures. So today's creature feature is a special vulture, the Lammergeier. The Lammergeier, or easier to pronounce, the bearded vulture, is pretty spooky looking beast. It's a large bird with about a 10 foot wingspan and unlike most other vultures, has a fully feathered head even equipped with a dark goatee under its bill that makes it look a lot like your classic Disney villain. Dead stuff is really important to vultures, but the Lammergeier takes it to the next level with a diet that consists heavily of bones. They'll pick up large bones and fly up high, dropping them on the mountain ranges that they can call home and breaking them open so they can get the marrow inside. If the bone is small enough, though, they'll eat it whole. Bones are the last thing to stick around after an animal dies. The things that Lammergeiers eat aren't just dead. They're dead dead. Dead things are important to the world around us, not just the animals around us, but certain people as well, as you'll see later on. Full stop. I do just want to say that as like a bird fan, this is like normally I, I'm really passionate about local backyard avifauna. I love the stuff that I can go outside and look at. You know, it makes me feel connected to the place I'm living in. So I don't usually focus too much on like world birding and world numbers and all like that, just because my birdings tend to be hyper regionalized wherever I'm living. The Lammergeier is the one species that I genuinely like feel like I have to see before I die like that is like the one species where I'm like I will do a trip just for that it's like that maybe the stellar sea eagle but other than that like I love this thing this thing is a dragon it is the coolest I was literally bird. about to say that Matt I was literally about to say it is an it, it is a dragon uh -huh. it's, it it's is... no it, it's evolved beyond bird yeah like like cassowary is stuck between dinosaur and like bird. no, no cassowary is just dinosaur. This is yeah. dragon. Yeah, this like was like you know what bird? Not enough for me. It is <sighs> such a gorgeous animal, and they are such a perfect fit for an episode talking about dead things. So, mm -hmm. thanks for that awesome creature feature, Brittany. Yeah, thanks for presenting a species that I feel a lot of solidarity with, being as bearded as I am. Very good. Oh, Matthew. that was good. Mm -hmm. Very mm -hmm. good, Matthew. Okay, so my current event is from Mongabay, um, a source that I will highly laud every single time I use it. And the story is called What the Mauritius Kestrel Can Teach Us About Wildlife Reintroductions. It was written and published on September 20th, 2021, but it's um, a really, really cool article and one that I think deserves reading. Now, it's a really big, really kind of whole scale delving into 
the issue of the Mauritius kestrel, a species of kestrel that lives on the island of Mauritius, which is about 800 kilometers east of Madagascar and is smaller than the state of Rhode Island. Um, it's a species of kestrel there, which is a species of falcon. So kind of like a peregrine falcon or an American kestrel or Merlins, if you're aware of those. And it actually is the only bird of prey on this island. Now, back in the 80s, in the 90s, a conservation program was really intensively discovered to help increase the population, which at one time dipped to four individuals in 1974, only to, by the 1990s, raise up to 400 individuals. It was a really good whole-scale program that has had its ups and downs that I'm going to refer to. Um, and there's a lot in this article that discusses how they did it. There was nest boxes that were put in that the birds ended up liking more, as well as protection and pest management stuff because there are a couple invasive species that don't belong there that prey on their nests. But the one thing that I thought was the most interesting takeaway from this article is the discussion that they have about what happened when the species rose up to about 400 individuals in the 90s. So the Mauritius kestrel really had a massive jump because of a lot of donors, a lot of people who really cared and were doing constant intensive work on this species. And like I said, rose from four to 400 in the wild. And the story behind that's really beautiful, so much so that they decided to delist it on IUCN from being critically endangered at four to um, vulnerable. But with that came a bit of a drawback. That's something that we as conservationists, especially in America, where the Endangered Species Act kind of rules things a little bit, we need to kind of be careful from because listing and delisting does have effects on not only the species that are currently being listed, but also the management programs that seek to help them. See, for a couple of years after it was delisted, funding from outside funders actually dropped because um, I'd say probably, you know, it's linked to this, oh, well, they don't need my help anymore. So therefore, the money isn't going to go to there. And with that drastic drop in funding came also drops in continued study, continued monitoring, and continued programs being put in because with no funding, there can be no work. And so scientists now estimate that there are, yet again, fewer than 250 Mauritius kestrels in the wild. It's not as bad of an issue in the situation as it was, you know, at the start where there was only four, but it does bear credence to the fact that when these species are delisted, they can't be left back to their own devices. You can't just automatically go back to the way you were living before and expect things to maintain the way they are. And that's kind of the price we pay for how touched our environments are. A lot of species that come under human care and human preservation will continue to need to be even if their numbers rebound. So it's really important that programs that come in stay enacted and in person and continuing to be worked on because that's what's going to preserve these species to get them to a point to where they can fully survive. Unfortunately, just getting them to the bare minimum number to survive doesn't necessarily prolong their survival. Nonetheless, the story of the Mauritius kestrel is still a massive scientific success story and bears a lot of resemblance to a lot of other successful 
um, reintroduction stories as well and is a great story to look at if you want to get acquainted with how to potentially run a program for a different species. But it also highlights the topic that aid and assistance can't end when listing as endangered does. In fact, sometimes that's where your work only just begins. So you got to keep at it, keep helping out the people who do the work that keeps these species around and keep supporting them so that these species, these beautiful, beautiful birds can survive. Thanks, Matt, for that current event. We do stand a kestrel here. So my current event um, also comes from Monaga Bay, which uh, the title reads, Domestic Bushmeat Consumption and Urgent Threat to Migratory Mammals, UN says. And so um, the article kind of starts talking about um, how there are a lot of different species of animals that will start migrating. They give an example of 10 million straw-colored fruit rats that will travel to uh, Zambia from the rainforest of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And um, it just starts kind of talking about the harvesting of wild bushmeat and how that can have a really critical impact on species and, and their numbers. It talks about how they did a study on the impacts of wild meat, uh, of bush meat taking trade and consumption with 105 different species. Um, they looked at ungulates, primates, carnivores, elephants, and bats, and they found that 70% of mammal species protected under the CMS are used for wild meat consumption, and um, and that's talking about both the legal and illegal hunting. They also talk about how some of these, some of the reasons why they're being um, hunted are for uh, cultural practices, uh, medicinal use, trophy hunting, and human wildlife conflict. And it just says that there is a huge impact on a lot of these species, um, and a lot of those species are threatened. It kind of also talks about um, then how migration patterns have changed, how some uh, migratory animals are now on the decline because of these hunting these hunting practices, and um, it talks about how primates and ungulates are the ones who are at risk in particular, um, and that's a lot of times because of conflict and famine, and um, and it goes on to talk about the risks of doing bushmeat hunting from like when they give an example of zoonotic diseases. Um, and they also talk about alternatives and things like that. And the reason why I found this article so interesting is it's something that we have all kind of mentioned at some point here on the podcast is how we can sit here and say hunting is bad and don't do it. And you can't, you can't, like that's horrible. But we're, we're not in those cultures where like, there might be a famine and that's what they have to eat and things like that. There's there's other aspects that are coming into play. So I just think it was a really interesting article that kind of brought all of that up and um, just kind of talked about the impact that it has on these different animals. 
Yeah, that's definitely really important to talk about with, you know, the, the stigmas of hunting, right? Absolutely. So thanks for bringing that to our attention, Brittany. Before I get into my current event, I kind of want to start off with a joke. You guys down for a joke? Let's hear it. Mm -hmm. All right. What's black and white and the size of a 10-year-old? Zebra. No, not a zebra. Oh, yeah, newspaper. I know this one. Newspaper is a pretty good guess, but no, not quite. Brittany, any guesses? What's black and white and the size of a 10-year-old child? Honestly, I'm going to tell you the first thing that came to mind, and it was a king penguin. <laughs> a good guess. A better guess would have been an emperor penguin because they're larger. But it's not an emperor penguin either. It is actually a giant extinct species of penguin that lived between 27 million and 35 million years ago in what is now New Zealand. So that's the, that's the opener to my, my current event. So what you're telling me was that I was right. You awesome. were definitely the closest. It definitely wasn't a newspaper, so... <laughs> really beg to differ there's some pretty big <laughs> newspapers out there you ever read the tribune before is long so my current event is from livescience.com and is titled kids discover giant penguins fossil skeleton in new zealand subtitle its scientific name means long legs in the maori language so a group of club members led by a fossil expert named chris templer found the extinct giant bones on a small peninsula during a field trip in New Zealand. Um, obviously, these are all like New Zealand natives, and they're kind of taking a local field trip. The fossil was the most complete giant penguin skeleton ever discovered, and the length of its hind limbs inspired researchers to name it Kirukuru Wawe Roa. Wawe means legs, and Roa means long in Maori. I'm very sorry about pronunciation there. And scientists wrote all about this in a new study. So today, the largest penguin is the emperor penguin, like I said, with a close second of the king penguin. Good guess, Brittany. Emperor penguins stand at about four feet tall, about 1.2 meters for our international listeners, and can weigh up to 90, 99 pounds or 45 kilograms. However, giant penguins were much bigger than that and were common during the Paleogene period, about 66 to 23 million years ago, across Zealandia, a landmass that now includes New Zealand, and a lot of which is now mostly underwater. Giant penguins that lived millions of years ago were also thinner than the portly emperor penguins, which is uh, part of what the researchers reported. When the, the young naturalist spied the fossil, it was sticking out of a block of sandstone that had been uncovered by the tide, and they initially mistook it for a rusty propeller. But after Templar and another group leader, Tony Lorimer, saw it, they quickly realized what they had found and how exceptional it really was. So it really was a group of young people who discovered this giant penguin fossil, which is so, so exciting. The uh, Hamilton Junior Naturalist Club is a natural history club in Hamilton, New Zealand for children ages 10 to 18. And these kids found this giant penguin fossil, which is so, so cool. So I wanted to share that really cool current event. That was awesome. Thank you so much. Who doesn't love getting to hear about how kids are just amazing and inspiring and fantastic and so with i think we uh covered some uh some fun nature current events and we're gonna head on over to um our interview with emily grassley so we are here now with emily grassley emily we're so glad to have you on the podcast why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself 
Hi, yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Emily Grassley. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I have been in the world of science communication for almost 10 years. Um, I, I uh, for eight years, ran the YouTube channel, The Brain Scoop, out of the Field Museum here in Chicago. Had the pretty sweet job of chief curiosity correspondent. Um, and I've also been um, working with PBS for a number of years. I had a three-hour special about paleontology and dinosaurs called Prehistoric Road Trip that came out last year. And I'm still working on um, some other new digital projects. So, yeah, I don't, science communicator. That's a little bit of background about me. It's hard to sum, summarize, I guess. I, talk, I get excited about stuff for a living. <laughs> We very much so appreciate having you on the podcast. It is truly an honor as someone who grew up uh, going to the Field Museum like all the time, right? That was my place. And this episode is part of the Spooky Bunch, which is our whole, you know, month long Halloween kind of extravaganza. And, you know, what's more spooky than dead stuff in this episode being about the importance of dead things, you know, coming from the museum field and being involved so heavily in that for a while do you have any thoughts on you know why potentially dead things might be important from whatever perspective you deem most fit well i i with in the absence of dead things <laughs> like the physical actual like remains of organisms we wouldn't it would be difficult to reconstruct a baseline for past environments across the globe so the dead things that we have that are housed in natural history museums and collections all over the world, um, you know, biological specimens are time capsules and they record within their very fiber of their being, their very tissues tell us, you know, an untold number of things about these organisms from an individual level to, you know, a populational level to even a species level. And so sort of for like the context of the entire biosphere on our planet has a baseline and a grounding within our understanding of it from museum collections. So that's sort of like, it's kind of hard to summarize why and how they're so important. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you go back to, you know, the history of, of science that we, before there was more advanced technology, we had what scalpels and, dead things and we got to cutting and we got to poking around and asking questions and really basically the only thing um, that has changed is the technology and the questions but we're still doing the same thing today poking at dead stuff <laughs> that's awesome though um it's kind of it's it you said it's hard to summarize but i think it's a pretty good overall synopsis of what how important dead things really do play in in the world um do you have any can you think of any memorable personal experience that you've had um encountering dead things whether it's fossils or taxidermy i know you were talking about some paleontology road trip uh channels that you've done can you share with some share with us some uh personal experience yeah that's that's great um Great opener. I, you know what it got me thinking about? So when I first got into this world of like science communication and natural history, um, I guess correspondence and advocacy, uh, it was as a volunteer in a small 
museum that was on my college campus at the University of Montana. And it's called the Philip L. Wright Zoological Museum. And as a volunteer there, I was trained to be a preparator in the, um, in essentially their preparation lab for the vertebrate collection. So it was my job to work with a couple of their volunteers to process the roadkill that we would get from Montana Fish and Wildlife. And the reason that they would pick it up if it was on the side of the road or whatever would be, you know, for a various number of reasons. Um, one of them being that all of these bighorn sheep in Montana were dying at like really unusual um, rates and levels of frequency and they couldn't quite figure out why. And so, you know, they'd have some of these radio collared um, sheep and they would die or wander near the road and they were sick and they'd get hit by cars and they would have all these dead bighorn sheep and nowhere to put them. So they would drive them to the zoological museum where I was supposed to prepare them. And we, I did this for a year and a half and it's kind of hard to store a lot of dead bighorn sheep. They do take up quite a bit of space. So just sidebar, um, we put some of their heads in trash bags and stuck them out of the zoological museum second story window because outside Montana was like a better refrigerator than the deep freezer in the biology building. So anyway, oh, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so that was uh, what I did as a volunteer, but long story short, um, it turns out that these bighorn sheep were contracting a contagious kind of pneumonia from the domestic livestock in the area. And so in these places in Montana where you've got overlapping populations of the domestic um, cattle or, or the domestic sheep, um, the livestock and the wild populations, they're kind of transmitting these diseases to one another. And so like that was really important to learn. Um, and we couldn't have done it without like having these necropsies and researching their their physical remains and essentially like looking at them from the inside out, trying to figure out what the problem was. And similarly, um, zoological specimens at that um, museum in particular were also used um, to learn that uh, the kind of hay that park rangers in Yellowstone National Park were using to supplement the feed of elk and deer in the winter was actually the wrong kind of uh, feed hay and because it was getting stuck in their teeth and then it was getting jammed in their gums and their gums were abscessing and they were getting infections and dying. And again, one of the things that they learned only by bringing like their dead bodies to a zoological collection and preparing them and seeing like the evidence of, of this pathology. And so like, those are just two examples um, of, you know, two instances in Montana when wildlife management overlaps with um, zoological museum work. And it all leads to conservation and helps inform like the decisions of like what we do and how we interact with wildlife and what we can do to mitigate some of these problems. That's awesome. I, you were talking about how important it is for, for for us to be able to learn and to educate, not only just in in the scientific community, and but with wildlife management as well. Do you have any good experiences in being able to, or stories to be able to explain why it's so important for us to not only educate within our science community, but also educate just everybody? Yeah. Um, so I've been working on a project with uh, PBS Digital Studios and with a channel called It's Okay to Be Smart. 
And the series is called In Our Nature. And it's the six part natural history kind of, you know, sort of like your traditional PBS natural history show. Um, real kind of like a throwback to uh, to some of those fun uh, shows I remember from my childhood. But anyway, one of the stories that I worked on was looking at sort of the history of bison conservation in the United States. And it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of an interesting tale in that I think the story that I knew when I was growing up and when I was like going through my public school experience was very much like, um, you know, people, Europeans started colonizing the United States in 1700s and going forward. And then there was just a lot of people and they just kind of overhunted the bison. And that's why they went from, you know, 30 to 60 million individual bison to 200 individuals in the matter of like 400 years. And so, like, that was kind of the myth that was perpetuated was that it was just poaching or overhunting or trophy hunting. And, you know, the older I got and, and through working at the Zoological Museum in Montana, which, you know, is close to the National Bison Range uh, and actually is like the physical repository for the last bison that were collected by the Smithsonian Institution in 1883 by William Temple Hornaday, who is, you know, the anyway so i'm going on tangent long story short um it's we were looking at the history of bison conservation and the when you look into the the details it starts to become more apparent that like this was actually an eradication effort on part of the like on behalf of the u.s army and an effort to essentially starve out indigenous people here it's a really horrible story and it's one that like I don't want to gloss over the, the how awful it was, um, but in trying to, I mean we can't erase the the ills of the past, but in trying to like move forward and provide a habitat that could support a reintroduction of bison, it requires so many different members and people from different facets of society. So what I learned from working on that episode is that you're not just talking to scientists, you're talking with, um, you know, tribal organizations, you're talking with universities, you're talking with private landowners, you're talking with people in the industry and agriculture and land management and the Bureau of Land Management, like federal, you're talking like across, you're talking to show, you talk, you talk to everybody, like conservation touches everybody, all these departments, all these organizations. And it's like this interconnected web of like bureaucracy and also complications of just the work and so it starts to just become a little clearer when you <laughs> look deeper into these stories like how hard it can be to move the needle forward and then you know we worked with this organization called the intertribal buffalo council which is a consortium of 70 different tribal organizations and communities across the u.s who are all working um, sort of collectively to return bison to their tribal lands and when talking with like the executive director, um, this wonderful woman named Arnell Abold, she just, I mean, she's glowing when she said anytime they can introduce even a single bison to tribal lands in the U S it's like, it's, a, it's, it's healing a small wound. It's a celebration in and of itself. And it's a symbol of hope that permeates throughout their entire community, wherever that community is. Um, because it's not only about healing of a, a physical landscape of conservation of species today, but a lot of these um, reintroduction efforts are also about conserving, you know, the cultural health and the spiritual health of these environments. And so I think that's one way 
um, that science communication and the stuff that we're doing public outreach, you know, it really, it permeates everything in our society. You know, I think that's such a beautiful summation of all the overlapping, you know, lines that come from, you know, what we're doing as educators and communicators and all that. And it's one reason why I geek out about your work in general. And admittedly, just hearing about, you know, your work at the museum um, in Montana was really interesting to me as well from a selfish reason, just because in my undergrad, I've worked with a really similar zoology museum um, at Miami um, of Ohio. So it's like, admittedly, it's, I don't know, like, it, I get overwhelmed. It geeks me out really, like, a lot. But just seeing, you know, all the good work that comes from it, you know, it's truly inspiring to see how much work goes into it as well as how much good comes out of it, like you were talking about with, you know, discussing the recovery of the bison and how many people have had to work together at the same time to make this happen, to right this wrong. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I still get a lot of questions. I mean, every day people ask me how they can become involved in work of like conservation work of some of these larger museums, like the field museum, you know, it's one of the largest natural history museums in the world. Um, and what I would tell people too is, you know, absolutely, if there's an internship or volunteer opportunity, or you're inspired by the work or research that's happening, you know, reach out to anybody in that museum. But also remember, like, small, it doesn't matter, like, how large or small one of these collections are, how, how large or small an organization is. You know, sometimes I argue that you can, you might even have a, a bigger impact working in a smaller organization or having more leadership opportunities at a, at a smaller, um, for a smaller project that can help, uh, you know, really launch your, even help shape who you are and who you want to be in conservation and help you focus on the problems that you want to solve. Um, so yeah, I'm all about championing those, you know, university collections and, you know, any kind of like after school program on campus group, anything like get involved, grassroots, bottom up, let's go. I'm excited. When do we start? Oh, I don't much. know what we're doing. <laughs> I get geeked I love the excitement, out too. Though. I love the excitement, though. <laughs> Me too. It, it's so exciting to see, especially when people align with like your your morals and ethics and your passion. So it's always, you know, excites me. And one other thing that I noticed that we aligned about when we were communicating with you as well is you had made mention, you know, since we're the Birdie Bunch podcast, that you also wanted to talk about birds at some point, which is a huge, huge passion of mine. I love ornithology. That's what I'm going to school for, kind of tangentially a little bit. <laughs> and that's a big passion of mine. And so our creature feature for today is actually the Lammergeier, the bearded vulture. And yeah. we've discussed that one already. And if you have any things about that, you can bring it up. But also, do you have any potential favorite birds or bird stories that you'd like to share with the listeners of the birdie bunch podcast i do i want to talk about a group of birds that is very special to me especially considering like the last year the pandemic being home and all that okay so i am for context i'm a huge bird nerd i think i love birds more and more every single day and i don't know how it's possible um but i love bird. i look for them everywhere i see them everywhere you know they're just they're with you um, always, even like the house sparrows in the gutter. Like I love them. I was just at, at Nando's 
the other day and there I was just marveling at this little population of house sparrows that had devised this very sneaky way of like stealing people's tortilla chips from under the table but anyway um so before I could do that before I could appreciate the Nando's house sparrows um I was stuck at home like everybody else and I'm really really lucky and privileged that I can have a, a home with a yard and, you know, kind of a, a safe sanctuary space in my backyard, you know, in those like private area, like that's just very peaceful for me. Um, and th- that was great to have during the summer and the fall. And then, you know, winter came and it was, it was rough guys. Like it was dark. It was cold. We were there. We were all in it together with all just the stress, the political environment. Like it was, I think we were all having a hard time, but there was a light in all of this. And it was early December of 2020. And I was, I don't know, in my pajamas somewhere in my house. And I heard my partner from the front of the house. And he said, I think there's something like weird and green outside on your bird feeder. And I was like, what are you talking about? He was like, yeah, I don't know what it, it looks like a parrot. And I'm like, that's not right. And so I went downstairs and I looked outside there's a flock of monk parakeets on my bird feeder. And for those that don't know, there is an, you know, a tropical bird called a monk parakeet. They normally live in places like Central America, but they've made their home in different like cities around the U.S. And Chicago is the furthest north that they live. So this population has set up in Hyde Park and they've been there for like, I don't know, 60 years or something. Um, but they're amazing because they are like the only tropical parrot that can withstand the winters here. And they do it because they rely on backyard birders, like people who leave out food for them all winter long. So like I it was awesome. And, and I had heard from people that if they find your house, like they will come back. And to be honest with you, like it was one of those things that just gave me a little bit of hope every day. It gave me something to look forward to. Like it gave me a reason to go outside in the polar vortex, put my snow boots on, you know, get out my like seed cakes and my suet blocks. And, and every day, uh, you know, it didn't matter how overcast it was or just snowy or awful like the weather you know, I, it was just magical to look outside and just see like 15 bright green and white parrots like in the snow. It, and it was some of the, you know, in how terrible the pandemic was. It was it was a light in, in that time. So so that's my bird story. I just wanted to share how much I love the monk parakeets. I love that so, so much. I, as a recent Chicago birder also started during quarantine, um, you know, it it's been so crazy just the amount of interesting birds. I made my down my way down to Hyde Park and other neighborhoods uh, in that area and saw them as well. So there are so many amazing birds, especially this year. Migration's been pretty crazy. We got the broad-billed hummingbird up from Mexico. We got whippoorwills from the West. We got lots of crazy birds in Chicago this year. Well, it's getting yeah. crazy, crazier too, because Ida, because oh, hurricane, hurricane Ida. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. It's pushed a lot. It's been Warbler Central right now. I've had yeah. in the past two days four American red starts in my front trees. I've never wow. even seen them in my yard before. The other day I saw Wilson's Warbler for the first time. It was <laughs> there's some good stuff. That's awesome. I love birds. Yeah, Me how too. can you not? Me too. And I love being able to hear stories of so many people who we've communicated with who have 
something beautiful came out of the pandemic because it's been such a rough time and I'm not, you know, I went from talking about it in this past year as if it was a past event to I'm now returning to it's a current event again. And that's a tough pill to swallow. But just hearing how many positives on an individual basis that some people have had, you know, whether it was finding birds for the first time or, you know, a lot of people just reconnected with nature in general, right? Having to utilize different spaces to get out of your house and enjoy what's outside. And I think that's been it's truly inspiring to hear just, you know, that resurgence in love for the outdoors that even though we had this terrible thing happen and it makes my little old heart happy hearing how many people fell in love with birds. Cause I'm like, man, I got more friends to talk to about it. It's great. <laughs> I think that's such a, an important and like special role that we kind of all get to play being able to not only talk to the public about our passions, but even just getting to talk with each other. Cause hearing Emily, your story about having the bird feeders in the backyard, I'm like, dang, I need to go put a bird feeder in my backyard now. Because like mm-hmm. I'm I'm I know some birds. I'm getting better with the birding every single day. Matt and CJ are great for that and trying to help me figure out bird sounds and being able to identify more birds. But even just getting to hear stories like that. And I think that's something so special that we all get to kind of do and share. Yeah, I love that. And birds are like such an awesome, like common denominator, you know? Mm-hmm. They're that charismatic kind of animal. We could all you see them everywhere. They can inhabit all different kinds of environments. And you know, there's like also it's the need to see a, a resurgence or a renewed appreciation for urban wildlife, especially. Um, I know a good friend of mine, Rosemary Mosco, you might know her from the webcomic Bird and Moon. But she's got a book coming out this month. Uh, it's like a field guide to pigeons. It's just all about pigeons and how cool so pigeons are. The natural history of pigeons and where they came from and all the different species and why they bob their heads that way. And like, it, I think it's just awesome. You know, the more that we've been kind of stationary, the more that we've actually like looked around and appreciated what was around us. Yeah, I mean, what a what a wonderful sentiment to kind of start to wrap this episode up with um kind of plugging that book there i'm definitely gonna pick that up i love the pigeons here in chicago they're coming they're a menace but i love them um emily if you want to kind of let our listeners know where they can find you maybe on social media or if you have any projects coming up you'd like to plug please do we're not a huge platform but we do have a little bit of a platform oh heck yeah so um i'm working on a new web series called art lab it's on my youtube channel youtube.com slash emily grassley art lab is all about the intersections of art and science and um it's being created with an accessibility first mindset so it's a unique feature in youtube it's got a dual audio feature for those who need um described audio so i'm just super excited about that because i'm learning so much about accessibility in media um then that's just really cool i'm geeked out about that um and yeah if you want to follow me on instagram i'm e grassley and i'm emmy on twitter at e-h-m-e-e perfect thank you so much uh you mentioned accessibility i just want to plug real quick a couple weeks ago on the podcast um it's a couple weeks ago as of this episode coming out not of currently so emily if you want to check this out you can but a couple weeks ago on the podcast, we had Birdability on the podcast. Um, it's a nonprofit who works to increase accessibility in birding. We've had them on in the past, and you know we've talked to them a lot about 
um, accessible trails, um, accessible um, like field guides. It's a really fascinating organization if you want to check that out. I highly recommend it. We're friends with some of the organizers there. So that's awesome. Yeah. Some good Man, stuff. I need to make an art lab video with them. Yeah, they've really upped our accessibility game too. You know, we we started doing transcripts because you know we're kind of like a ad lib, not really scripted podcast. So it's tough to make a transcript. So yeah. we kind of have a, a a fourth member kind of uh you know work on making transcripts and it's hey. it's just increased our accessibility game tenfold. Yeah, do you I mean there's a lot of software. Yeah, that you that's can what use. we've got now. Okay. Because I was going to say, I use, um, and I've experimented with a lot of transcription software for my line of work. I have found that Trint is the best for uh, for what I do. Um, I don't know if you've used that one or experienced it at all. but Honestly, I'm not sure. Um, our We have a writing and programs assistant who kind of works behind the scenes on the podcast. His name is Elliot. And he has a software that he uses. I don't exactly know what it is. But yeah. I'm sure it's something good. <laughs> It's it yeah it can make a huge difference. So anyway, I don't if you if you need other recommendations. Appreciate that. We'll definitely look let into me that. Know. <laughs> a good transcript saves hours and hours and hours of work. Yeah, I mean, we we've definitely uh, realized that as well. So, thank you again for being on the podcast. This has been such a wonderful conversation. We really love talking to you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I've loved this. Thank you so much. This has been so fun. I've loved <laughs> cool. this. Yeah, awesome. thank you so much. Bird boys geeking out. Um. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Just thank you again to Emily for coming on and talking with us. We we loved having you on, and we are definitely gonna have to keep a lookout for those uh, monk parakeets out here, both in Chicago and St. Louis. Um, <laughs> but um. With that, I think we are all all set and ready to go. Um, where can we find y'all on those social meds? You can find me on the social meds at cj.greco. That's cj.greco. And I don't think I have any pictures of a Lammergeier in my uh, repartee of pictures. But I do have some King Vulture pictures that I might post this week in honor of the uh, celebration of dead things. Yeah, and y'all can find me at Matt Valga. That is M-A-T-T-V is in Vulture for our good friend, the Lammergeier, A-L-I-G-A. And I love that you brought that back. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Not the most active, but um, when I get good birds, you, you'll all hear about it. So it'll be fun. And you can find me on Instagram at the Brittany underscore bunch, T-H-E-B is in Brichter. R-I-T-T-A-N-Y underscore B-U-N-C-H. Um, and I also don't post very frequently, um, but I'm trying trying to get some more fun photos of just local wildlife here in, in St. Louis and the zoo and um, all those fun things. Um, so now that you know where you can find us individually, collectively, we are on Instagram at the Birdie Bunch Podcast. You can also find us, of course, on our website at thebirdiebunchpodcast.com. Again, I'm just going to remind you all about our spooky code. Use code SPOOKY for 15% off all of those spooky bunch merch. And we just really, we really appreciate that. Um, if you can't help us out financially, however, 
totally understandable. That's okay. But what you can do is a couple of things. You can support us on Patreon, which um, is awesome, and we appreciate it. And you'll get shout-outs on the podcast. Um, we have different uh, tiers of what what different things can get you. Um, but we just wanted to say thank you to our Patreon, Gabe. Andrele, shout out to Gabe for continuously supporting us. We love you and we appreciate you. So thank you. Um, but you can also just, you know, tell, tell, tell your friend, tell a random stranger, tell someone on the street or in the grocery store that the Brady Budge podcast is awesome and check it out because that's how we can continue to, to bring things out to you guys. And, um, you can also give us a review. We don't have any new reviews right now. If you give us a five-star review, we'll, we will read it out, out here on the podcast. Also, if you don't want to give us a five-star review, that's okay. We like to learn. We like to grow. We, we want to keep read it out. Yeah, we won't read it out, but we will <laughs> look at it. We will talk about it. We'll grow. We'll love you for it. But if you give us a five-star review, we will read it out. And I think with that, we will catch you all next time. Spooky. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. We would like to thank Sarah Dunlap for designing our logos, Elliot High for being our writing and production assistant, and Connor Whitman for being our music producer. The mission of the Birdie Bunch podcast is to inspire an inclusive community for conservation by using education to promote fascination.